For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, Ari Berman will report on the tremendous victory for voting rights in Texas, where a federal court ruled that the state intentionally discriminated against black and Latino voters with its redistricting maps and its voter ID laws. Also, we'll ask Katha Pollitt, should the feminist movement welcome people who are anti-abortion, wouldn't that make the resistance to Trump stronger? But first, do white workers who voted for Trump still support him? The nation sent Don Guttenplan to Ohio to find out. He's returned now with his report. We're often told that the white working class is Trump's main base of support. In fact, Trump's main base of support is Republican voters, most of whom are not working class, but in the crucial states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio, and some other places, many white workers who had voted for Obama four years ago voted for Trump this time, enough to make him president. So we need to understand those voters. We need to try to reach them not just blame them and condemn them. So the nation sent Don Guttenplan to Ohio with that mission. D.D. Guttenplan is the nation's editor-at-large. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. His latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an e-book at thenation.com. He reported for us often during the campaign. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, you went to Lordstown, Ohio, legendary site of a GM assembly plant, which now assembles the Chevy Cruze. First of all, tell us how the people who worked there and around there voted in November. Well, Lordstown straddles the border between two Ohio counties, Trumbull County and Mahoning County. The county seat of Mahoning County is Youngstown. The county seat of Trumbull County is Warren. If you look at them separately, Hillary Clinton narrowly carried Mahoning County, which is where Youngstown is, by about 6,000 votes. But that's still 50,000 votes less than Obama got in 2012 and in 2008. And Trump carried Trumbull County, which is a county that a Republican hadn't carried for 40 years. So when you got to Lordstown, what was it like? What was going on there? Well, nothing was going on there because on Inauguration Day, a few hours before Donald Trump took the oath of office, they closed down the factory for two weeks in order to retool and figure out who was going to go where when they were only working on two shifts. So it was one of the noisiest places in the planet before Inauguration Day and one of the quietest, eerily quiet when I got there. The Chevy Cruze is assembled in Lordstown, and where else? Well, they make them in Lordstown, and they make them in Mexico. Uh, and there's a certain amount of uh, smoke and mirrors about this, because the, 
the normal Chevy Cruze is basically made in Lordstown. And when Trump tweeted that the, that they should stop selling Mexican-made cruises in the U.S., GM put out a statement saying all Chevrolet Cruze sedans sold in the U.S. are built in Lordstown. Uh, but in fact, I spoke with a car salesman in Lordstown, a Chevy dealer, who got a dozen Mexican-made cruises. He looked at the VIN, the vehicle mm. identification number, and realized that these cars, which he was going to be selling to you know, the neighbors, friends, relatives of auto workers had been made in, in Mexico, and they weren't going to be very popular. Wow. What about Donald Trump's statement during the campaign and his many tweets, make it in the USA or pay a border tax? Well, that's right. Uh, during the campaign, I had been to a rally in Canton, Ohio, and had heard Trump say that if you wanted to bring imported cars into this country, cars made in other countries, and sell them here, you were going to have to pay a 35% duty to do it. Uh, and he he said that again in his tweet. In fact, it was his tweet on January 3rd that really made the media pay attention to the Lordstown layoffs because he he tweeted, make in USA or pay big border tax. And, of course, that, that pleased his supporters in Ohio. Well, we want to know what Trump's working-class voters think about, first of all, about this, about Trump failing to keep the Chevy Cruze assembly in the United States and, and at least up to now, not bringing back uh, the jobs from, from Mexico. And the larger question of what, what Trump's working-class voters think about his first, what is it, 50 days uh, in office. Well, I think uh, they're connected, and I'm going to answer the second question first because it makes more sense that way. When you talk to the people who supported Trump, without exception, everyone I spoke to who had voted for Trump was pleased with his first 50 days. Where we see a lying, racist buffoon, they see somebody who never pretended to be a politician and who, since he's been inaugurated, has been doing exactly what he said he'd do. He scrapped the TPP, he's tried to crack down on illegal immigration, and he held a jawboning session with the big three automakers, which didn't get any response from GM, but did get both Ford and Fiat Chrysler to promise they would make more cars in the U.S. And that was big news in Ohio. So again, where we see somebody who's committing outrage after outrage, or who just seems either incompetent or sometimes borderline insane, they see somebody who's in action, who's doing things. When I said to them, well, what about the fact that, you know, these layoffs went ahead and he hasn't done anything to stop them? They were like, well, he's trying. And, and also, interestingly, they had a, they had a, a more... <laughs> a more nuanced view of the labor market and the realities of, of the auto business than certainly most commentators, in that they said, well, the, the, the crews were selling great when gas prices were high. Now gas prices are low, so people don't really want to buy the, you know, they don't care so much about mileage. But if gas prices go up again, then the crews will become popular again. So they, they didn't see this as really in, in, in the president's gift. So is this a situation where Trump voters say, we still think uh, that Trump was a better candidate than Hillary? We would have voted the same way, even though we know Trump isn't going to do the things that he promised. Or are they actually enthusiastic about Trump today? One of the things that I realized the more time I spent in Ohio was that Hillary Clinton was a perfect storm of a terrible candidate for these voters. 
and not just because she's a woman, and some of them are fairly macho factory workers, and not just because she seemed, in some sense, an elitist and out of touch with their values, but specifically because she was married to Bill Clinton. I mean, I spoke to the city council president of Warren, Ohio, who used to be the president of the UAW local at Lordstown, who said he'd sat next to Bill Clinton at Lordstown in 1992 when Clinton had promised that if he was elected president, he would bring a Pentagon accounting office, some 7,000 jobs, to Lordstown. He said, if I'm elected, I won't forget you. And then he was elected and he forgot them. And, you know, they didn't forget him. So there's this, there's this sense of politicians, certainly including Democrats, as people who just habitually make and break promises. And that's one of the, that's one of the reasons that Trump is still popular with these people, because they don't see him as acting as a politician. If he begins to act as a politician, he'll, he may well lose them. You say Hillary was the perfect storm of a bad candidate, but didn't Hillary talk about jobs a lot in Ohio? Uh, no, she talked about jobs in Ohio. I could find three speeches in which she mentioned jobs. People didn't believe her. Huh. I mean, that was the, you know, I, I would say to people, well, didn't she say this? Didn't you see her program? And then they said, well, she, of course she'd say that, but, you know, she's a politician. They never do what they say they're going to do. And again... This is one of the cases where being Bill Clinton's wife counted against her. So just to be clear here, how many of the people who voted for Trump that you talked to at this point still believed they were right to vote for him? All of them. All of them. All of the, all of the people I spoke to who voted for Trump, which isn't a massive sample, so you know this may not have statistical validity, but they all believed they were right to vote for him. They were all happy with what he was doing. But it is also true that a lot of these people, I mean, I, I spoke to uh, Mike Ray. He's a city councilman in Youngstown. And he said, you know, Trump did very well here, but there wasn't a lot of down, down ticket damage to Democrats. The people, all the, Dem all the local Democratic office holders were also reelected by big margins. Hmm. So what that suggests is that these people have not switched to a Republican worldview. They are not, you know, now permanently enrolled in the ranks of the Republicans. Um, but they can certainly no longer be taken for granted by Democrats, which was pretty much the Clinton strategy, you know, that we can take this, these voters, for, these, these people always vote Democrat, we'll have them. We don't have to work for them, we don't have to speak to them, we don't have to try and calibrate a campaign that offers them anything other than a nicer version of more of the same. And and what about uh, what about Bernie or or what about Elizabeth Warren? Uh, what kind of uh, response did they? Well, get? I, I I mean Elizabeth Warren didn't come up very much. I did talk to a lot of members of the UAW who had been. Some of them had voted for Clinton. Some of them had voted for Trump. But all of them said that they were enthusiastic about Bernie. So. You know, there were certainly people who were enthusiastic about Bernie, but decided that if they couldn't have him, they would settle for Trump as somebody to shake things up. I, I mean, such people are not mythological. I met some of them. Well, in closing, I just want to be as uh, explicit as possible. We want to reach these white working class Trump voters in Ohio. How do you think we can do that? There are two things. One is... We have to come up with policies and campaign appeals that are about jobs and work and the dignity of work and that recognize that that's important. You know, 
you hear a lot of talk about, on the left about a guaranteed minimum income or universal minimum income, and it may or may not be a good idea, but I have to tell you that I didn't come across anyone in Ohio who was looking for that. What they were looking for is the feeling that I've, I'm supporting my family and I'm working at a job that pays well and provides security for me and my loved ones. So one thing is that we have to think really seriously about the changing world of work and the economy and offer policies that give people a feeling that they have some hope because at the moment they don't. And then the other thing is, uh, and this is going to be in some sense just as tricky, to figure out wedge issues or areas where we can begin to peel blocks of working class voters. And I say working class voters deliberately and not white working class voters because, of course, all of these issues cut just as deeply or more deeply with black and Hispanic working class right. voters. But where we can peel people away from Trump, I mean, health care is a good example where, you know, whether or not they come up with Trump care, whether or not they fix Obamacare, which it looks like they're trying, they're not even trying to do. Clearly, the left ought to be able to come up with an offer on health care to people who are, you know, terribly concerned about being bankrupted by an illness and are still concerned about that. So, you know, there were, there were, there were lots of ways to peel people away from the Democrats because of the way Obamacare was structured and marketed. Um, but we need to peel people back. And I think health care is an issue where people can be peeled back. But we, the left, have to be looking for issues to peel people back. But I think that comes second, in fact, to having a much more intense focus on jobs and people's need to feel that they are working and earning and part of the economy. One more question. Trump is not going to uh, bring back those GM jobs that went to Mexico, I don't think. Three or four years from now, is there going to be a wave of disillusionment with Trump like there was with the Clintons? Well, I'll tell you, on my way out of Ohio, I went through Braddock, Pennsylvania, and spoke to John Fetterman, who's the mayor there. Braddock is a small town just east of Pittsburgh, and John is an ex, he was a Bernie supporter, but he spent the summer working for Hillary. And he's terribly worried because his voters are the same voters as the people I spoke to in Ohio. He said, basically, Trump won't bring the jobs back to the auto plants, but he thinks that Trump is being very smart in focusing on jobs and American jobs. And he said, he told me if, if Trump persuades Foxconn to build a plant in Pennsylvania that builds iPhones in America, then that's Pennsylvania gone. One of the takeaways from my story is that if you think that this is going to be over in a week or a month or a year, you know, it's going to be a long four years. And if the Democrats don't get their act together, it's going to be longer than that. D.D. Guttenplan, you can read his report on white workers in Ohio at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure. Now it's time to ask the question, should the feminist movement welcome people who are anti-abortion? Wouldn't that make the resistance to Trump stronger? For some answers, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her latest book, Pro, Defending Abortion Rights, is out now in paperback. Hi, Katha. 
Hi, John. How are you? I'm good, and I want to try to make the case here, which a friend of mine argued before the Women's March, you know, the day after Trump was inaugurated. Uh-huh. Let's not make support for abortion a precondition for joining the feminist fight against Trump, because we know that people disagree about abortion, and we should focus on our areas of agreement, namely that Trump is bad for women for all kinds of reasons, and we don't have to agree on all the reasons. We shouldn't limit our movement with ideological tests, but instead we should invite everybody who's for women to unite against Trump. We can deal with our political differences later, some other time. Right now we will be stronger in our fight against Trump if we welcome opponents of abortion. That's the argument. How did I do? Well, you you laid it out in a very clear and logical way. You're just kind of wrong. Uh, <laughs> okay. No fault of your own. No, uh, of course, everyone who is against Trump is welcome to the movement for fighting Trump. Um, that's not what this is about. This is about should, should anti-choice women be allowed to take a leadership role in the feminist movement. For example, and that's what that was all about with the, uh, with the Women's March. It wasn't that, of course, women who are, were, are against abortion, against legal abortion, who want to make it a crime for a woman to have an abortion and want to put people who provide abortions in prison, that's what we're talking about here, those women were welcome to march, and some of them did. What they were not welcome to do is to be official sponsors of the march. And that seems fair to me. Um, it is just simply not feminist to want to force other women to bear children that they, regardless of their personal circumstances, of their health and of their economics and anything else about them, um, that's just really, I, don't, I just don't see how that can be a feminist position. It's really against women's human rights. It's saying whenever a sperm happens to get in there, you, woman, have to risk your health, your life, your safety, uh, your relationships, your other children, what, your job, everything to bear that child. How can that be feminist? So is it possible to believe in equality for women and also to believe that the fetus has human rights, a right to life? I think sometimes those things do come in inevitable conflict, and then you have to choose. Anti-abortion people like to say, love them both. But we've seen the most horrible cases in places where women can't get abortions. Like in Ireland, for example, they let a woman die. They let a woman who wanted an abortion, who was a, an immigrant from another country, who had been raped there in the other country and couldn't get an abortion in Ireland. They made her wait until she was in the third trimester, and then they gave her a cesarean. I mean, how is that right? It's not right. You know, it would be lovely if everyone who got pregnant would, was just, oh, fine, a baby, great. But it isn't like that in real life. In your column on this uh, issue, you talked about a group called New Wave Feminists, who I was not familiar with. You wrote about their leader. Tell us, tell us about New Wave Feminists. Uh, well, New Wave Feminists was the group that wanted to be listed as a sponsor of the Women's March. So I called up their leader, their fearless leader, Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, and uh, she was very lively and amusing. She said, 
the pro-life movement needs feminism, which is interesting. Instead of saying feminism needs the pro-life movement, she put it the other way around. She said, stop just focusing on the fetus. Focus on the woman. Freaking, freaking bloody photos and a guy with a bullhorn are not going to help. <laughs> uh, um, and I thought, well, you know, she's, a, she's sort of on the way because at least she acknowledges that the, the movement against abortion, against legal abortion, you know, has historically not been women's friend. You know, if you try to go get an abortion at a clinic where they're where they have picketers outside, you would never think, oh yeah, these are the people who are going to help me. But you know, I I, th- I think that um I think that a woman can certainly be anti-abortion for herself. She can certainly say, and many women do. They'll say, you know, I I would never have an abortion, but I think it should be legal and that other women should make the decision for themselves. To me, that is a pro-choice position. Yeah. I'm interested in this idea that the pro-life movement needs feminism. Where would that take us if we followed it? Well, one thing they would do is, and I think here is an area where women who are pro-choice and women who are not pro-choice could work together, is, uh, well, let's, let's make sure that that every woman has health care. Let's make sure that every woman who wants to have a child can, you know, has the wherewithal to raise that child. Um, but, you know, the anti-abortion movement has not really been in the forefront of this. Um, what they've been in the forefront of is making it harder for women to get birth control. And, you know, the fact is birth control is the o- lowering the rate of unwanted and unintended pregnancy is really the only way to significantly reduce the number of abortions. So it's just amazing that, you know, every couple of months someone gets the bright idea, oh, I know, let's, uh, let's have the pro-life movement, so-called pro-life movement, be for birth control. Well, they're not. They're just not. They think they have persuaded themselves that the methods of birth control that work the best, the pill, the IUD, and the IUD, are forms of abortion. Yes. So if you have an IUD, you're having a, a sort of an abortion every day. <laughs> if you take the pill, you're having an abortion every month. This is how they really see it. And they have to acknowledge at some point, that what their real aim is controlling, sex, is controlling sexuality and is pushing women back into a, a domestic role and a role of dependence on men and a role of being the, you know, not having sex except when they want to have children, um, which is pretty much the official position of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says if you want to have sex, be prepared to have a child. You mentioned in your column that all the new restrictions being proposed by Republicans in states they control to make abortion even harder to get as long as Roe v. Wade remains uh, the law of the land. Texas provides an example. Uh, You want to remind us what's been proposed in Texas? You were referring to a proposed law that would make abortion a felony for women. Yes. As well as for providers. And the the state representative, um, Mr. Tinderholt, who proposed this, said that it was very important that uh, women were too careless and that if you made abortion a felony, maybe they would pay better attention to, to birth control. 
course, nothing about men in this, right? It's all on the woman. It's all—it's always all on the woman because in pro-life landia, it doesn't take two. It only takes her. Texas also has a new law that's been introduced by a feminist that deals with men and their sexuality. Could you tell us about that law? Oh, well, this uh, would fine men $100 every time they masturbated. Um, and, and I think that would be most amusing. And <laughs> what, is the, what is the feminist logic behind this outrageous proposal? Uh, well, I think the idea is that, that Texas legislators want to control the sexuality of women by forcing them to continue pregnancies and also by having closed down a lot of the places where they could get birth control. So let's just have some turnabout as fair play. I mean, every now and then there are laws like this um, that are proposed, along with, of course, getting rid of Vi- Viagra subsidies, which are millions of dollars every year that women help pay for so that men can have Viagra. So, you know, it's just all completely unfair. What can I say? <laughs> well, this Texas law aimed at men says that emissions outside of a woman's vagina should be defined as failing to preserve the sanctity of life. And they also propose that if you want a Viagra prescription, you should receive a medically unnecessary uh, medical procedure, namely a digital rectal exam. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it is interesting that with Viagra, uh, which is often justified as helping with infertility, that, you know, it helps a man impregnate a woman. But, you know, they don't say, oh, are you planning to have a baby? Are you married? Are you using this in your marital relationship? There's just nothing like that. It's just, oh, a man wants to have an erection. He should be able to have an erection. One other aspect of the argument that we started with, that the feminist movement should welcome uh, people who are anti-abortion, you make an analogy of should the ACLU support prayer in the schools because that would enable them to win more members? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, because uh, David Lanhart in the New York Times said that he agreed that feminism should not take a position on abortion, basically, because there were so many uh, anti-abortion women out there. But what I'm saying is that if you look at what feminism is, if you look at what it means, it's about women's health, women's right to say what goes on in their body, women's right to lead a life that makes sense to them, women's right to make choices, women's right to do what's best for their children, then that really is not compatible with forcing women to stay pregnant. And in the same way, I mean, even if it would, there would be more women who would say, oh, yeah, now that, you're, now that you don't say anything about abortion, fine, you can have your equal pay. <laughs> Those women can be part of the feminist movement now. You know, it's like the nuns on the bus who are all anti-choice, you know, are feminist heroes because of what they've done to promote the Affordable Care Act. And you do, there's such a thing as coalition politics where people work together on an issue that they share the same position on. For example, the Catholic Church, which I think has, you know, just lamentable positions on uh, many issues, but certainly on women's issues, um, they're against the death penalty, and so am I, and I would have no compunction whatsoever about working with a Catholic organization on on death penalty issues or donating to Catholics against the the death penalty. That's how politics really works, right? 
Um, you don't have to all be on the same page about everything. But in the case of the ACLU, the ACLU has a ver- very strong positions about separation of church and state. And that's not really a universally popular uh, position to take in our crazy United States. Um, for example, with, with prayer in the schools. So if they said, oh, prayer in the schools, you can have it, you don't have to have it, you know, really, whatever. <laughs> there might be some, a few people who would say, oh, well, now I'm joining. But they would have lost something very important, their own, their own principles. Okay, Katha, you've, I think you've convinced me. Oh, I have not lived in vain then. <laughs> Women's right to decide for themselves when and, and if to become a mother is an essential part of feminism. If the state requires that every girl or woman who becomes pregnant give birth to a child, if the state makes it a crime for women to decide for themselves, there isn't a lot left of the ideals of equality and self-determination for women. Katha, thank you for convincing me, and our listeners can read all about it at thenation.com. Thanks so much for having me on the show, John. Now it's time to talk about a huge victory for voting rights. Texas intentionally discriminated against black and Latino voters with its redistricting maps and its voter ID laws. That's what a federal court ruled last Friday. For comment, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and a fellow at The Nation Institute. His new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, is out now in paperback. He's written for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian, as well as The Nation. And he's a frequent guest on MSNBC and NPR. And he recently received the Izzy Award for his work on voter suppression. Ari Berman, congrats on the award and welcome back. Hey, John. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Well, let's start with the laws in Texas that were at issue in this court decision. There really are two different court decisions, but I'll break down the most recent one, uh, which is that Texas passed uh, its redistricting maps uh, after the 2010 census, so in 2011. Uh, those laws were subsequently blocked under the Voting Rights Act for discriminating against uh, black and Latino voters. Basically, all of the demographic change occurred in Texas from minority voters, yet instead of drawing districts that would allow blacks and Latinos and other fast growing minority groups representation, uh, Texas gave those districts instead, those new seats they got from from population growth, to white Republicans uh, instead of the minority voters that that actually uh, gave the the state new seats. So then the the law was blocked under the Voting Rights Act, uh, but then the Voting Rights Act was gutted and states like Texas no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. So there was a whole nother trial in 2014. The District court took a very, very long time to rule, um, but uh, on late Friday night, they ruled uh, that these districts were, in fact, intentionally discriminatory, that the Republicans who drew them did it purposefully to make sure that minority candidates did not have proper representation. This has been obvious for a long time. How were the courts able to recognize the obvious? 
Well, it's a very, very lengthy opinion. It's a, a hundred and something pages, and then there's statements of fact that are about 600 pages. So even I uh, couldn't get through uh, all of it. But, but basically, two things happened. One thing Texas did is they concentrated minority voters in as few of places as possible uh, so that they would have v less influence in other districts. So basically, you know, we'll give you one seat when you really should try to give you, you know, two or three. Then the other thing they did is they spread out minority voters in other areas. So instead of giving them a seat to which they could elect their candidate of choice, they instead made them have no influence in a bunch of different seats. So this is in redistricting terminology. This is known as packing and cracking. Uh, but basically, the big picture here is that Texas gained four new congressional seats after the 2010 census. Ninety percent of the population growth in Texas was from minority voters. So you would have expected uh, minority candidates to be able to win three or four of those seats. Instead, they only were able to win one of those seats. And then, so the gerrymandering that Texas did was one way in which Texas Republicans were basically responding, or in this case, ignoring the demographic change in the state that, that should have hurt Republican candidates, but they manipulated the process to benefit themselves. And where do we stand on voter ID right now in Texas? The voter ID law has also been struck down uh, by numerous courts. Like in the redistricting trial, there was a finding of intentional discrimination. Uh, that finding was remanded by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to a lower court. There was a hearing in late February to determine again whether that law was intentionally discriminatory and noteworthy. The Justice Department under Jeff Sessions reversed the Obama administration's contention that the law was intentionally discriminatory. So right Right now, uh, there is going uh, to be uh, another ruling coming from the court at some point over whether the Texas voter ID law is intentionally discriminatory. Now, this is really important because you don't need to find an intentionality to be able to strike down these laws. So I don't have to say, you know, I discriminated purposely against uh, blacks and Hispanics uh, for the law to be struck down. However, if there is this finding, what it means is that Texas could be bailed in to the Voting Rights Act, meaning they could once again have to approve their voting changes with the federal government for a period of time if there is a finding of intentional discrimination. And that's why these cases, both the voter ID and the redistricting cases, are so important, because right now no states have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Texas could become the first state to have to do that. Now, obviously, for a period of time, they'd be submitting their changes to the Trump Justice Department, so there wouldn't be a whole lot of oversight uh, by the federal government. Potentially, if there's a change in regime in 2020 and Texas appointing, approving all of its voting changes, that's a pretty big deal. How similar are the new Texas redistricting maps to redistricting maps in other states? Well, a bunch of states have had their redistricting maps blocked for different reasons. So redistricting maps have been blocked in places like Florida, in North Carolina, in Alabama, in Georgia. In a number of different states, they've found that Republican legislators have discriminated against minority voters. So uh, Texas is not unique in that regard, but what Texas did is so egregious in that the demographic change was so obviously beneficial uh, to minority voters and minority 
majority candidates, yet white Republicans maintained an iron grip on the state. And they, they did so many things that were really nuts. Like, they drew a district that looked like it was Latino majority district, but they did it in such a way that they drew in all of the Latinos that didn't vote and took out all of the Latinos that did vote. So it was never actually going to be a Latino majority district. It just looked like one, and that therefore a white Republican could stay in power. So they were really devious in terms of what they did here. Uh, it's unfortunate the courts took so long to rule in these cases because there have now been multiple elections in Texas under districts that's cl- that are clearly illegal. And to me, that is really a clear case of election rigging. We talk all the time about these crazy acts accusations from Donald Trump about voter fraud and election rigging. But right here in Texas, we see what actual election rigging looks like, how they've manipulated the process, both to make it harder for people to vote with the voter ID law and also to deprive them of the representation that they deserve uh, with the redistricting maps. Redistricting uh, does not affect the presidential election, which is statewide, but it does affect the distribution of seats in the House of Representatives. Looking forward to the 2018 election, the Democrats are wondering if they'll be able to retake the House. They need they need to win 25 more seats in order to regain control of the House. What are the chances now uh, of additional Democratic House seats from Texas after 2018? Well, if, if these districts are drawn fairly and expeditiously, this should give Texas uh, at least two more uh, majority Latino congressional districts, which should go for Democrats. So it should give Democrats two more seats. And actually, Texas, is, although it's considered a red state, is a place where actually Hillary Clinton uh, overperformed and Donald Trump underperformed. So there's a bunch of districts in Texas where Republicans could be vulnerable in 2018. So people kind of dismiss Texas as like, oh, it's this red state, um, we shouldn't bother. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunities there. There are 36 congressional districts in the entire state, and there are a number of seats where Democrats might be able to pick up control. So Texas is really important in 2018, and of course the demographics of Texas are changing so rapidly uh, that people are projecting at some point on the presidential level it's going to become a swing state, whether that's 2020 or 2024. It's going to happen at some point, and when that happens, it's going to really change change the political map because it has so many electoral votes. If Democrats could become competitive in Texas or even win the state, that would make it very, very hard uh, for Republicans to win the Electoral College. We record our program in Los Angeles, and we're often struck by the fact that California and Texas have almost exactly the same proportion of Latinos in the population and in the voting population. Nevertheless, California is the bluest of the blue states. There are no statewide Republicans elected in California, and Texas is just the opposite. We've often tried to figure out why that is. The best argument seems to be California has a labor movement, especially in Southern California, that's led by Latinos, and they have organized their community to uh, vote Democratic very effectively. Texas does not have an active labor movement. What is it going to take, do you think, to make Texas blue? It seems like demography alone is not going to do it. Texas is really a case study uh, that demography is not destiny. Uh, yes. So there's a, there's there's a lot of different reasons why the state 
is still so red. Um, first off, I mean, it's just very culturally conservative, obviously. There's a huge influence of the oil and gas industry, which pushes everything uh, to the right. Uh, white people in Texas don't vote for Democrats, uh, which is a big difference than white people in California or in New York or in other states. Uh, you also have a situation where uh, Latinos, it's not just that they're not represented in labor, it's that across the board, the socioeconomic factors are very, very poor uh, for many Latinos. Uh, so um, there's not the same level of engagement on, on a whole host of issues. Uh, and Texas also makes it really hard to vote. Uh, I wrote a story uh, for the nation uh, about how Texas has the toughest voter registration laws in the country. They have to be deputized by the county to even be able to register voters. So it's very, very difficult. You have 2.5 million unregistered voters in Texas. And it's very, very, very difficult to register them. And it's clear from, from the data that if those 2.5 million unregistered voters were registered and then they were voting even at decent numbers, Texas would be a swing state right now. So I think it's, it's a combination of, of culture and economics, but I think Texas has put in place all of these laws from their redistricting law to their voter ID law to their registration laws that have made it harder for the demographics to translate to political power. Ari Berman, readamatthenation.com. Thank you, Ari. Thanks a lot, John. Good to talk to you. Last but not least, we have some good news for podcast listeners. Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast has moved to thenation.com. The Edge of Sports podcast is where sports and politics collide. Hosted by our friend, sports editor of The Nation, Dave Zirin. We've talked with him here about some of the guests on his show, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and that famous baseball fan, Noam Chomsky. You can also hear Dave's commentary and his rants, along with calls from listeners with questions or comments about the show on Edge of Sports. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you will find something to love in this podcast. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.